Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of a whack on the side of the head by Roger Van Uch. How you can be more creative. Creativity, absolutely vitally important. Knowledge is one thing, but bringing new ideas and new approaches to the world is much more important. Rog, he was a creativity teacher of sorts, facilitator. He used to ask people in his sessions, when was the last time you had a creative idea? Some people might say yesterday, but some poor bastard said not for a couple of years and some said never. Mm. Yeah, that last person, not very motivated to find new ideas. There's really two big incentives to hear creativity head on, according to Rog. The first reason is that what used to work two years ago doesn't really work today. And then the other reason is it's just simply a lot of fun. So creative thinking, he says, is the sex of our mental lives. Um, I don't know about <laughs> Rog, but sex is <laughs> quite a bit different to what creativity is for me. But for Rog, he says it's similar because these ideas, they're born, they develop, they reach maturity and then the climax and then they die. So I don't know about Rog's sex life, but there's a bit of death at the end. I don't, I, yeah, no comment. The book's not about Roger's sex life. Let's move <laughs> on. Uh, what is creativity? He says that, you know, knowledge is the stuff where ideas come from, but knowledge in itself doesn't lead to creativity. He says that discovery and creativity comes from looking at the same thing as everybody else, but thinking something different. So, human beings, we've been using our imaginations forever. Someone looked at an oyster in the ocean and thought, oh, this is food. Someone looked at a sheep's intestines and thought, I can make some music guitar strings out of this. Someone looked at some mold and thought, maybe if I take this, uh, I'm going to get healthier and use it as antibiotics. Somebody first looked at uh, the internet and thought, I can make money off this. So, Creativity is all about looking at the same things that everybody else is seeing, but coming up with a different idea. It comes in different ways. I've got a story here for you. In 1792, there was a musician named Franz Hayden, whose orchestra were very mad because they were playing toward the big dog, the Duke. And the Duke said to Franz, hey, mate, we're going to give you a vacation soon. But he kept postponing the day when his vacation is actually going to come. So Franz, he was pretty creative. And what he decided to write was the Farewell Symphony. And in this performance with a full orchestra, toward the end of the performance, each member went off stage, blew off the candle and did a big wave goodbye to the whole audience. And the Duke was in the audience and it was bloody clear to the Duke and everyone there that this was the, the Farewell Symphony and they were going to get a break. So in this form of creativity, Franz, he's turning a labour grievance into a symphony. And this is something we can do that every day in our life, the everyday things that we deal with, our problems, if we can get creative, we can transform them into something completely different. So, can you be creative? Roger asks. If you've ever used a pen as a weapon or taken a rolled up toilet paper and pretended it was a sword or used a potato as a radio antenna or looked at a cardboard box and thought it was a car or a spaceship, then yes, you do have creative power. And so this book is all about unlocking that creative power that's deep inside of us that's been locked up over time and bringing new ideas forth to the world. We don't need to be creative all the time, but when we need to think differently, often our own attitudes get in the way and stop us from this creativity. So Big Rog, he calls them mental locks. And some of these include things like, that's not logical, I need to get the right answer, I need to be practical and follow rules, that's not my area, all these kind of stuff. But they can be open in a couple of ways. First, you can become aware of them and temporarily just forget them and just focus on generating on new ideas. And the other way is just a big whack across the side of the head to dislodge the presumptions that hold the idea in place. That's it. So these locks, these things that we tell ourselves, they stop us from being creative. 
forcing ourselves to try to find the right answer, being scared of making mistakes, uh, not being willing to play and try something different. These are all the things that lock us down and then the whack is the thing that really whacks that lock off and unlocks us. It could be something like if your boss gives you a special project and says it's due in two days, that's a whack to get you out of your current train of thinking and forces you to be more creative. Uh, it could be a philosophical paradox like uh, Paul Gorguin, Gorgine. You shouldn't ask me about pronunciations. <laughs> it's he says, I shut my eyes in order to see. So a paradox like that is uh, something that's going to make you think a little bit more creatively or it could be getting fired from your job that forces you to come up with new ideas. It could be a joke. Mm. Jonesy, what's the difference between a cat and a comma? A cat um, has... You're going you to let me answer it. You're not going to get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a cat has claws... Hang on. A cat has claws on the end of its paws and a comma is a pause at the end of a the clause. clause. <laughs> so, any, things like that are just like different creative ways of thinking that uh, whack you out of your current train of thought and open up your creativity. Yeah, I like it. Sometimes a whack feels like a setback. But really, it's an opportunity to do something different, be more creative and something better. And Roger's full of whacks in this, just whacks you up left, right and centre, I think. He loves whacking. <laughs> so, what we, so uh, basically what we're going to go through this book, we're going to go through some of the biggest mental locks that trap us into our current ways of thinking and stop us from being creativity and then uh, whack you. No, don't care. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then show you how you can whack yourself out of them. <laughs> Man, it's about whacking. <laughs> Jesus. One mental lock we have is the right answer. There isn't just one answer to the different issues that we face, which is a bit of a segue from before. I think the version of whack, because I'm slightly more creative than you, Astro, I saw the <laughs> other answers to the context of whack. You just see it through the context of the book and um, there's other contexts of whack, mate. <laughs> is that right? Is that how you got the, the joke as well? As I was telling it, even though I guess you'd read the book and so you had, you'd had heard it before. But, uh, <laughs> but Big Roger says uh, that children enter school as a question mark and they leave as a full stop. So our education system is really geared towards getting the right answer, not being wrong. There's one correct answer. You've got to go out there and find it. If you get the right answer, you get a tick. If you get the wrong answer, you get a cross. But in, in the real world, the right answer there's not just one right answer and often the first thing that comes to mind is not the best answer. So, Roger, in a workshop, he put a big dot on the middle of a blackboard and he asked a group of teachers, what is it? And then for them, their answer was, it's a dot of chalk on a blackboard. And for them, it was just a full stop, right? The adults assumed that they got the right answer so nobody said anything else and then they moved on. Then they asked a group of eight-year-olds, what is that? And then the eight-year-olds, they had a question mark here. They said, it's an owl's eye. It's the top of a power pole, it's a pebble, it's a rotten egg, a fingerprint, a cigar butt, a star, and so on. For them, the opportunities and the answers for them were really endless. So, as adults, we've learned to be specific, but that means that we've lost much of our imaginative power. Another teacher-student relationship here. A teacher gave a... Hang on, teacher-student relationship. You've got to be very careful with that these days. Uh, but... Um, the, the teacher gave a class an outline of a house and said, can you color this in with appropriate colors? And young Betsy, she gave hers back and the teacher gave a big red X over the whole thing. And the teacher said, what, you didn't follow the instructions. The grass is green. It shouldn't be gray. And the sky is blue. You shouldn't be coloring yellow and purple like you've done it. So why didn't you just use normal colors, Betsy? And Betsy says, well, I did use normal colors. This is exactly what it looks like when I wake up early in the morning to watch the sunrise. 
So the teacher thought that there was just one right answer. Grass is always green, the sky is always blue. But Betsy, with a young childlike imagination, realized that at different times of the day, it looks different and there's more than one appropriate answer. Yeah, this approach that we've got has serious consequences in the way we think and deal with all the issues that we come up with in everyday life. Most of us, we don't really like problems. So when one pops up, we try and fix it as quickly as possible. So the process we go through is like we react really quickly and the first thing that comes into mind, we just jump out and it just sounds about right and then you solve it that way. Nothing's more dangerous than an idea when it's the only one we have because what we do is we see the problem, we come up with the first idea and we think, okay, this answer, this idea, this can solve the problem and we just focus on all the positive. We just focus on all the ways that we can solve the problem. We don't realize that there may be some negatives, there may be some trade-offs, there might be a better answer out there. Just by finding one right answer and stopping there means we stop looking for a better answer. Yeah, there's huge opportunity costs if you don't look at the secondary answers. That's exactly what we need to do. We need to start with the assumption that there is a second right answer and then we need to go and look for them. So... I've got a question for you. How do you stop a fish from smelling? Well, I guess you can freeze it. Yep. I suppose you can cook it as soon as you catch it. Yeah, you're looking at the notes, so it's a bit easier <laughs> for you. But if you listen in, yeah, obviously you, you can leave freeze it. In water. it. You leave it in water. There's a few Th- these ways. are all very normal, I guess. Not very creative ways of doing it, though. Mm, but if you keep looking for that next right answer to stop a fish from smelling, you can cut its nose off. You can. And the fish can't smell. <laughs> Good one, Jones, man. That's another way of doing it. (laughs) Okay, so there are some ways that we can whack ourselves out of uh, the train of thought of just finding one right answer. So one idea that Big Rog has for us is that we should change the question. So he talks about an architect who is asking himself, what type of door should I put here? And that really limits you down to thinking, okay, what type of door? Do you put a wooden door? Do you put a metal door? Do you have a window or not? But that's really all you've got. But by changing the question and say, what type of passageway should go here, that opens you up entirely to more and more different answers. Mm, I think the metaphors you choose to bring into certain situations has a huge influence in what the outcome might be and just quite simply the way you look at certain things. So you can change the question, but also just forget all your assumptions about things. There's a quote here, when there is no sun, you can see the evening stars, which is very true. That big sun is your big assumptions that you bring to it. If you've already got a preconceived notion of what the right answer should be, you're not going to see all of the little other stars that are surrounding it that could also be possible right answers that may even be better. Roger at his seminars, what he does, he draws a line at the back of the room, gives each person 50 sheets of paper and says the winner who has the most airplanes fly past the line is going to win. And the most common approach for people is they get the paper, fold into paper airplanes and try and launch them across. But the one who wins always just grabs it, scrunches it up and throws it and it also flies across, which mm. is the only criterion that needs to be satisfied. So for those who could just drop the assumption about it needed to be paper airplane, those are the ones who won this exercise. I like it. We've got another podcast example here. We recently changed our podcast theme music, a bloke called Chris Burke who was uh, able to masterfully put together our new tune. But what Chris did, he didn't ask us the normal question like, what type of music do you like? He was asking us more about the podcast. And admittedly, they were pretty weird questions. Like, you know, if your podcast was going out for dinner, what would they order? Or what type of clothes does your podcast wear? Like all these weird different types of questions that have got nothing to do with music, but they really forced us to drop the assumptions, change the question and answer it in a different way. Yeah, when I first got those questions, I was like, ooh, it's pretty odd. 
then, you know, it turns out Chris is a superstar and he's a genius at what he does. Another big mental lock that saps us of creativity is thinking that play is frivolous and that we need to be practical. So what Roger says is that both play and work are important to coming up with new creative ideas. So you need to be both practical, but you also need to be imaginative. So I think people who are very practical and all about work and not play, they'll probably look down on the people who are kind of those imaginative and creative thinkers like that. So for those who are practical and work orientated, for them, their hard thinking is logic, reason, precision and accuracy, consistency, analysis, specific and everything to do with reality. And for those who are imaginative thinkers, they're thinking metaphor, dream, jokes and humor, ambiguity, play, approximations, generalizations and imagination. So what Rog says is that in the first phase when we're starting to come up with new ideas, that's when we need to use this soft thinking, this imagination, this play. This is where we experiment, we try different approaches, we're working out what works and what doesn't and we're not too concerned about is this idea good, is this idea realistic or not. Then the second phase, that's when we can start to be a bit more practical, we can use some of the harder thinking to sharpen up the ideas, that's when we evaluate and corroborate and and put the ideas into a useful form. But if you just skip to that work phase, of trying to be practical, you're going to miss all the important big picture thinking that comes from the imagination play phase. So for a lot of us, it isn't automatic to go through this play phase. So Roger's got a few different methods and techniques to move you in that direction. One way you can do it is by adding constraints. So play often means removing all the constraints, but sometimes it's the exact opposite. So forcing arbitrary and unnatural constraints like deadlines might actually force you to play around with things slightly differently. A few examples of this is, you know, rather than saying go and write a song, there's no constraints in that and it can almost be too freeing and then it's actually too hard to actually write a song. But if you say write a song about the ocean or write a song about an old man walking up a hill, forcing those constraints on yourself gives you a good starting point. Another one might be you have only got $100 to build this prototype. How would you do it? Another one could be, you know, this project normally takes the whole team and it takes a month to pull this project together. You guys have got two days to do it. So then you're forced into thinking about a different way of coming up with it. We might just imagine how others would do it. So you would say, what would Jesus do? That's actually something you hear quite a bit and it makes you have some creative ideas about how to handle situations. You might look at through the lens of other people like Da Vinci, Mask, Beethoven, Martin Luther King, Oprah, Genghis Khan, Walt Disney, Mother Teresa. If you go through the lens of all these different people, you're going to probably find out different ways to handle certain issues. Yeah, the way that you're thinking about your problem, you're going to be stuck in your own mind. But if you think, how is Leonardo da Vinci or how is Mother Teresa, how would they solve this problem? It means you're going to drop your own assumptions and think, what type of uh, constraints are these people going to ignore? What kind of assumptions are they going to make instead? What special twist or extra flavor would they bring to the problem? How would they break it down and reframe the problem? What expertise could somebody else bring to this? Getting outside your own head and thinking about how someone else would do it is a good way to play around with ideas. Okay, so the third technique to get in the imaginative phase is to step through a whole range of different metaphors for the issue. So Roger's got something like what he calls the life is like test. And if you use a different range of metaphors, you need a few different results about how you'd explain what life is really like. So for him, he'd say like, life is like a donut. It's delicious, warm, and when it's fresh, it can quickly get cold and stale. 
The hole in the middle makes it feel like there's something missing, but it wouldn't be a donut without it. Mm. Or he's got here, life is like a banana. You start out green, but then you get soft and mushy with age. Some people want to fit in with the rest of the bunch. Others want to be the top banana at the top of the tree. But if you strip away the outer shields, you get to the soft and tasty bit in the middle. Mm. I think if someone just asked me that question in everyday life, it'd be a very hard question to answer. What is life like? And you'd probably just go deep and weird and odd and won't give a good answer. Mm. But through the lens of a metaphor, it, uh, it really helps define different ways of describing what life is like. I've so, got a test for you, AJ. Yeah. Um, give me a life is like and I'll give you... Uh, tree. Life is like a tree. Tree. Oh, that's easy. Is it? Yeah. Life is like a tree. At the start, you plant seeds and then over time, a lot of those seeds won't grow into fruition and anything else. And there's a strike rate of seeds that actually won't make it into anything. But over time, if you give enough sunlight and sustenance, mm. water and moisture and then patience, over time, that tree will Ooh. grow. Nice. There'll be trees next to it. <laughs> It's going deep. There'll yeah. be trees next to it, and it's a competition for you to gain that sunlight against those other trees. Then over time, it grows up, and some trees get cut down out of nowhere by a chainsaw, which is also known as a black swan for that tree. They didn't see that coming. And then the tree grows up, and it's full fruition, and it's giving life, and it's giving apples and sustenance to all the things around, and giving mm. back to the earth. It gave it so much. Okay. But then inevitably, <laughs> the tree is going to die. It's got a lifetime. It had its chance and then it's got an expiration date and then good night tree and it's all over. Mate, I did give you a softball easy one. Mate, it says, Mate, you know it says two to three sentences. <laughs> Not two to three minutes, but good job. Yeah, Very creative, very creative. All right, good. I'll go on for you, mate. Oh, okay. Life is like a painting. <clears throat> Life is like a painting. We all start out as a blank canvas. <laughs> we experiment with different types of colors, different types of brush strokes, different combinations. In the end... Some people will come up with a slop. Others can make a masterpiece. That was actually pretty good. I reckon okay, you've got, got another one. Uh, microwave. That's a tougher one, I reckon. We're just, if you can't tell, we're just looking around and picking random stuff. Life is like a microwave. At the very start of its life, it goes through the raw materials phase and it's been given all the raw materials since the Big Bang to give it its one moment of existence. Over time, it does its work through very short bursts, mm. taking something and then changing it and then putting it back into the universe. And then toward the end of life, after a lot of different projects, heating up different elements that have been given to it, it has its end of life again. <laughs> <laughs> Yours are all about death. <laughs> it goes to the tip and then that was the life of the microwave. <laughs> okay. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Another big mental lock, something we tell ourselves that stops us from being creative is if we say, that's not my area. If someone comes to you with a problem, it's very easy to not come up with a solution and just say, no, sorry, that's not my area. Roger's got a story here of one of his friends who's a solar lab energy technician and she's got a problem. Her research lab is experimenting with a solar cell material, gallium arsenide. It's causing problems with the slicing stage of the cell production. And her task is to use a special high-speed wafer saw to make precision cuts of the material. So she's trying to do it as efficiently as possible, but every time she makes the cut, the material cracks. And she can't solve this problem. Every time she cuts, the material cracks. But then she gets home and she sees her husband in the workshop making cabinets. And she notices that when he makes his precision cuts, he reduces rather than increases the saw's speed. 
So she gets the idea, what if I have the same approach and reduce the speed of making these cuts with the solar cells? And that's exactly what she does when she goes to work on the Monday and all of a sudden, the material doesn't crack. It kind of makes sense. You would think that by having it super fast and just doing a super quick cut, then you get absolute precision. But it's by bringing in something from a completely different field, transferring the ideas of cabinet making to solar cell production, where you can see a different approach and a different idea. So if she purely dismissed as my husband's doing silly things on the weekend in the garage, she would have never thought to bring something different to her own arena. So she's exemplifying an important idea of creative thinking is recognizing a basic idea of a totally different situation than bringing it to her to issue and applying it to that. So the benefit of transferring knowledge gained in one area and bringing it to another, it seems obvious, but we really hardly ever do it. And the main reason we don't is because of specialization. I mean, it's drummed into us to specialize as much as we can. And then the more complicated things come, the higher the walls that we build around our specialties. As the world gets more and more complex and we feel like we have to keep moving deeper and deeper, then we're getting ourselves narrower and narrower down our own specialization. We're siloing ourselves off from other areas and you know, we might say, oh, that's just a, that's a marketing problem or that's an engineering problem or that's an administration problem. Where by putting ourselves into our own bucket and putting other people into other buckets means that we're going to miss out with a lot of the creativity that comes from this cross-fertilization. Yeah, it's something I hear about a lot is a lot of the, the leaders who are really innovating and making new product ideas. Like we've recently read Steve Jobs, which will come in the podcast, but he really integrated the engineering and the design and the marketing like no other mobile phone manufacturers were doing at the time. Same with Elon Musk, everyone at SpaceX making the biggest rocket ships in the world, looking like the most complicated problem you could even possibly imagine. Everyone on the team knows a little bit about everyone else's discipline. So the whack here is to be an explorer. So it's one thing to just be open to new ideas from different fields, but the real creativity comes from being an active explorer, going out there and seeking out some of these different things. Roger says it's like gold mining. A good explorer knows that if you're prospecting for gold and you keep drilling down the same veins that everyone else went down, there's not going to be any gold there. So you've got to go a bit wider, a bit broader and look for different tracks that people haven't been down before. So ideas are everywhere. If you go to an airport, you'll find them. If you go to a museum, you'll find them. Same applies for the wilderness when you're in nature. They're just absolutely everywhere. So there's huge upside of stepping out of your day-to-day tasks. To do something completely left of field, because over time, your new set of experiences that you got in the background will lead you to looking at issues very differently to your colleagues and all the people who are already specializing in your profession. The next mental lock that we hang on to is the idea that being wrong or failure is bad. Rog tells us of 1979 when the Boston Red Sox player Carl... Oh, shit. <laughs> I don't know how you always get these names. Carl Yastrzem... Carl Yazzie became the 15th <laughs> player in baseball history to reach the 3,000-hit club. And there was weeks of build-up to Yaz approach his famous milestone. And one reporter asked, is all of his attention going into your head? And Yaz man replied, in my career, I've gone up to bat over 10,000 times. That means I've failed more than 70% of my attempts. That fact alone keeps me from getting a swollen head. I don't know if it was Yaz to Jordan or Jordan to Yaz, but I feel like they stole... Uh, from each other. Mate, Yaz came first. Yaz is 1979. Okay, so John stole from Yaz, that quote that he used for Nike. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, this book was written before Jordan even came along. 
but we're taught in school that failure and being wrong is a bad thing. If you're in school, if you get above 90% right, then you get an A. If you get less than half of them right, you fail. Even if you get like 10% of them wrong, you've already dropped down to a B. So being wrong, we're taught, is a bad thing. But we know, uh, we talk about it a lot, that failure is often a better path to success. James Joyce said that a man's errors are a portal of discovery. Thomas Edison, he found 1,800 ways to not make a light bulb before he found the one way that worked. Sigmund Freud, he tried and failed in, uh, several times to find this new discovery before he landed on his psychoanalysis. Christopher Columbus, he was just trying to find a shorter route to get to India when he just accidentally found the Americas. Mm, in one sense, really, success isn't necessarily a, a good thing. It can really lock you into a narrow pattern. I mean, if nothing's broken, we don't try and fix and improve everything if it's all going well. And success can create situations that really undermine your original intention. There's a funny story. The Japanese town of Atami, they were, they were lobbying the government hard. They wanted to build a bullet train that traveled at 300 kilometers an hour, a direct route from Tokyo to Atami so they could get more tourists to come there. But what they found was actually when they did build the big bullet train that got there, tourism went down. And really, that was because it wasn't appealing anymore. It just became like an extra suburb from the city. It was hardly like escaping the city for the weekend if it only took them 30 minutes and they could get there on the bullet train. So, success isn't necessarily good and he also says that failure isn't necessarily bad. I mean, negative feedback in the form of failure is just simply that. It's feedback. You're actually getting data on how you can actually improve and do things a little bit better. This negative feedback means your current approach isn't working. It doesn't mean you're not necessarily doing good enough or that you'll never get there. It means that the path you're on right now isn't the optimal path and you can learn to move in a slightly different direction. Yeah, we learn by trial and error. We don't learn by trial and rightness that we need to not be afraid to make mistakes and make errors. Often it is a scary thing when you try to propose a new idea and you speak up in a meeting and suggest something different, you're going to be worried about being wrong. But ultimately, that's a mental lock that's going to blunt your creativity. So we need to be okay with being wrong. Now, the biggest mental lock of all, the one that really stops us from being creative is saying to ourselves, I'm not creative. We were all once creative as kids. Our imaginations would run wild. A cardboard box could become a spaceship. A teddy bear could become a dinosaur that was chasing you. A a bush could become a portal to a, a different world. But it's not that we're not creative anymore. It's just that we tell ourselves that we're not creative anymore. Yeah, if you tell yourself you're not creative, it's kind of like an amplifier for all the other mental locks that we've been already going through. If you really believe that, you're only going to look for just one right answer. You're going to try and only think logically and rationally. You're going to be afraid to take risks and being wrong. You're going to be afraid to venture outside your comfort zone into other areas. And you're just going to follow the rules and think playing around and being silly and funny is kind of frivolous and stupid. This idea that I'm not creative is ultimately a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you say that you're not creative, then you're never going to try to be creative. You're never going to suggest a new idea. So, ultimately, you're not creative. Mm. So, if you really believe and think that you're someone who's not creative, it's really going to stop and punish you for the rest of your life. So, I think starting today, one thing you should do, Rog says, is just simply just give yourself a creative license. Start believing that you are and then you're going to get the positive feedback loop to have the new ideas and all of a sudden, you'll be bringing new creative solutions to some of your most difficult problems. There might be some fields, maybe you're in finance or accounting or law or science or something where you think that creativity just 
is reserved for the the Shakespeare's and the Da Vinci's of the world, and you don't need to bring any new ideas forward. But creativity is vital in any field. Thinking different, suggesting new ideas, coming up with new approaches is absolutely pivotal to becoming an important and contributing member of your organization. And really the only difference between someone who is creative and someone who isn't, the creative people think they are, the not creative people, they think that they're not. 